New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Perhaps you've had the experience of being elevated by the act of reading, feeling lifted almost literally to a higher level where the air is rarefied and the view is vast. These are the words of our guest today, Dean Slider, who offers a banquet of literature that we most likely have not tasted or considered since our assigned reading lists in high school or college. For those of us who have been committed to a life of awakening in truth, Slider gives us deep insight into the writings of such luminaries as Mark Twain, William Blake, Henry David Thoreau, and many more as he takes us into the nature of reality and universal truth. I remember the many tedious hours of class as we study the iambic pentameter of a poem. But I would never have fallen asleep in Slider's class if he had been my college lit professor because he knocks my socks off as he reveals the noble truths of the infinite available in classic literature. Dean Slider lived in New Jersey for 33 years where he developed the Literature of Enlightenment program at the Pengree School and worked with inmates at Northern State Prison and Mountain View Youth Correctional Facility. He now lives in Santa Monica, California and teaches natural methods of meditation and awakening throughout the United States and beyond. He's known for his funny, down-to-earth style and for making life-transforming teachings accessible and easy. He's the author of many books, including Natural Meditation, A Guide to Effortless Meditative Practice. Also, Fearless, Living Beyond Fear, Anxiety, Anger, and Addiction, and The Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature. Join us for the next hour as we explore what classic literature has to teach us about awakening to the deep wisdom of our soul with Dean Slider. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Dean, welcome once more to New Dimensions. Oh, thanks so much, Justine. It's so great to be back with you. It is fantastic to be back with you. I was so excited about this book when it came across my desk. You really have brought to life, as I said in the introduction, so many 
authors, that to revisit these authors and to see them in a new way. And I, first of all, I want to just ask you, you talk about in the beginning of the book how even the authors may not be realizing the deep wisdom they're tapping into. So say something about that. Yeah, you know, um, asking an author or really any kind of artist uh, about the work of art that comes through them. It's sort of like asking a, a chicken about the mineral content of the egg that it lays. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, when you're really deep in the process, the, the process just takes over. I mean, I, in my own small way, certainly experienced this in my own writing. I, the, the best thing that ever happens in my writing is, is I sit down to write a chapter and I think I know where I'm going with it. And then once you get into the flow, you know, something else happens. Yeah, exactly. And and then you read it later and you say, wow, did I say that? Yeah, where did where did that come from? And then, then the next thought is, and can I ever do it again? That's the <laughs> truth. Isn't that the truth? I'd, I'd like to ask you, you start this particular book, The Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature. You started with William Blake. Why did you pick him as a beginning chapter? Well, I picked Blake um, for a few reasons to, to start with. First of all, he's he's well known and well loved by you know a lot of people on the the path of awakening. So I, I I wanted to start with with something that that was familiar, and also he's one who was certainly very, you know, eyes wide open, consciously and deliberately uh, exploring the realms of spirit and and expressing them in his literature and, and in his art. When he says, if the, if the doors of perception were cleansed, man would see everything as it is infinite. That's right on the nose. You can't miss that. So I start with things like that, and then even with Blake, I I go a little farther away. Then it's a it's a little more of a stretch to see what he's doing when he writes "Little Lamb, Who Made Thee? Dost Thou Know Who Made Thee?" You know, looking at the the beautiful innocence, the the grace, the loveliness of the Lamb, and extrapolating from that to the God, the infinite of which the Lamb is an expression. Then I go a little farther. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry, right? That also must be included. The ferocity of the fearsome tiger also must be the expression of the same infinite. And then I go on to writers, a few of whom were, like Blake, consciously um, as spiritual explorers like Emily Dickinson and Gerard Manley Hopkins, the, the tortured priest, quietly write anonymously writing poetry that would be discovered not till the next century as basically inventing modern poetry. Um, while, while he was ecstatically celebrating God's grandeur. But then I also mostly I I like I like going for the high-hanging fruit. I like going, going for Moby Dick, which most people, if they even got through the 700 pages of it, think of, oh, this is just this gory stuff about whale hunting, but it's full of transcendence, Huckleberry Finn. And what happened was a lot of these books 
for the 33 years that I was teaching English at this fancy prep school, I would come back and teach the same books every year. You know, and you keep coming back to Huckleberry Finn. You keep coming back to The Great Gatsby. And hopefully you get a little bit deeper into it each year. Meanwhile, pursuing my own spiritual exploration, my own meditation, and you start making connections. And you start thinking, wait a minute, am I the only person who's seeing this stuff? So, so that's really where the book came from. For instance, can I, can I read one Please. example here? Oh, I'd love that. Please. Yeah. So in, in Huckleberry Finn, which, you know, I, I think most people are familiar with the basic story. He's this kind of barefoot boy with cheek of tan, the, the son of the town drunk in a small riverfront town in Missouri in the 1830s. And he's running away. He's looking for freedom which of course is conceived as something external. So he has to first run away from the, uh, the widow Douglas, who is trying to, he makes him turn in his rags for uncomfortable starchy clothes, trying to civilize him. And he always spells civilized with an S. And every time you see civilized with an S, you know, no, that's a hopeless task. Nobody's going to civilize him. And, and then he winds up on the other bank of the river with Pap Finn, his father, who's this horrible, brutal, violent drunk. Um, and he has to escape from Pap. So one night he, after almost being killed by Pap, he, he manages to escape from the cabin where Pap is, is, has been keeping him and he gets on the river. So look at the way this is set up geographically. One bank of the river is too tight. The other bank of the river, too loose. It's like the story where the, the musician comes to the Buddha says, tell me how to meditate. And he says, well, is it good to string your instrument with the strings as tight as possible? No. As loose as possible? No. Where do you do it? Up the middle, the golden middle path. So every time Huck is on the river, he's fine. Anytime he gets on the banks, he's in trouble. So the first time that he's alone on the river, he escapes from Pap's cabin. He gets into a salvaged canoe. It's in the middle of the night. Now listen to this. Listen to these beautiful, perfect sentences. And I, and I always tell people, as a teacher of writing, I always tell people, if you want to learn how to write sentences, read Mark Twain out loud. I didn't lose no time. The next minute, I was a spinning downstream, soft but quick in the shade of the bank. I got out amongst the driftwood and then laid down in the bottom of the canoe and let her float. I laid there and had a good rest and a smoke out of my pipe, looking away into the sky, not a cloud in it. The sky looks ever so deep when you lay down on your back in the moonshine. I never knowed it before. Ah, uh, right. So then here's my commentary, because I was going, is, is anyone else seeing this? So I wrote, this is about as clear a baptism in the transcendent as anyone has ever written. After the hectic scramble to get clear of Pap, Huck lets go, lying on his back in a posture of utter passivity. He gives up rowing and steering, allows the boat to merge anonymously with the mass of drifting timbers and basks in the moonlight. This is how to meditate, 
let her float. And the result is a vision of unobstructed boundlessness. The sky looks ever so deep. In fact, a favorite method in Vajrayana Buddhist practice is Namkai Naljor, sky-gazing meditation, literally gazing open-eyed into the ever-so-deep sky and losing yourself in it. I love that. I'm so glad you read that because I, too, had pulled that, that particular passage out, and, and I did read it out loud, and I thought, yeah, I, I so agree with you that, that it was definitely uh, the description of a kind of meditation of just falling into letting go, and you can just feel the river, you know, sort of rocking you and just just floating away. It, it was right. it was wonderful. Right. And and getting back to your earlier point, you know, if we had Mark Twain here on the show and asked him, you know, this is the baptism into the transcendent, this is meditation, I'm pretty sure he would he would shake his head and say, what are you talking about? But that doesn't mean it's not there. The thing is, if the infinite is infinite, it must be everywhere. Exactly. And, and, and the fun is finding it. Exactly. I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Dean Slider, and we're talking about uh, many works uh, of literature that we're going to uh, talk about even coming up. And he is the author of the Dharma Bums Guide to Western Literature. And if you want to know uh, more about his work, you can go to his website, deanslider.com, or, and he spells his name, Dean, D-E-A-N, last name, S-L-U-Y-T-E-R, DeanSlider.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dean Slider, and he's the author of The Dharma Bums, Guide to Western Literature. Oh, we need to say something about uh, Dharma Bums, uh, where right. that title came from uh, for our listeners. Uh, right. So first of all, just the word Dharma for anyone, there's probably not a lot of your listeners who are not familiar with the word Dharma, but in this context, it's, it's we could say, the path of awakening, the path of enlightenment. Now, Dharma Bums is a phrase that was actually first coined by the Zen poet Gary Snyder, who is still alive. He's 90-something years old, lives in, in Northern California. Um, and uh, it was borrowed by Jack, Jack Kerouac 
uh, and it's the title of his novel, The Dharma Bums. So, uh, so I, in turn, borrowed it from Jack. And right there on the first page, I've got a little hat tip to Jack Kerouac. So, so it's clear I'm not trying to <laughs> yeah. swipe something. Great. Um, and, uh, you know, the, I, I always love the idea that just as surf bums follow the, you know, the good waves wherever they are, ski bums follow the snow wherever it is, you know, a Dharma bum is a person who the orientation of their life is to follow the Dharma, follow the path of awakening wherever it leads. And, you know, the other stuff, the making a living and all that, that's there too, but but this is the main path. I love it. I love it. And, um, you know, I was interested in looking at, uh, I looked up all the dates of someone's life, all these authors and the dates that they were living. So we, we, if we say William Blake, he lived from 1757 to 1827. Now, now, if you put that in time, he lived through the formation of the United States of America. Right. So, right. so you get that. And then you take someone like Mark Twain. Mm -hmm. So Mark Twain, how, how, when did he live? Famously, he, he lived exactly 75 years. He was born, I, I don't mention this in the book, but he was born when Halley's Comet was in the sky. And late in his life, he kept saying, I came with the comet and I'm going to leave with the comet. And in fact, because the comet comes every 75 years, the next time the Halley's Comet flashed in the sky, that's when he died. Amazing. So 1910. 1910. So 1835 to 1910. So he lived through the Civil War too. I mean, yes. I, I think of, you know, you just look at the history that's taking place as these writers. I just found that for myself, being interested in that. And I want to go back to William Blake and also Samuel Coleridge, who you also include. And Coleridge, his famous poem, Kubla Khan, was mm -hmm. uh, his long poem. You um, write at the end of that something about poetry itself. And I would love for you to share with our listeners your thoughts about poetry. Mm -hmm. Well, if I may, let me read what I said that. Because <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Please. A poem is a pebble. When it's dropped into the pond of human consciousness, it makes ripples and rings that go out and out till they reach parts of the pond that the pond didn't know it had. You are the pond. A great poem makes rings that go out forever because you go out forever. That's, pretty, that's one of those things that I said, where did that come from? Uh, yeah, um, uh, a poem is a winged messenger from infinity. It speaks to you, then flies back to infinity. And if you're relaxed enough to let it, it grabs you by the scruff of the neck and takes you with it. Touching infinity was the idea from the start. All the tribes had their hymns and chants for calling it forth. Every poem since, whether an Elizabethan love sonnet or a beat generation howl of anguish, contains some of that DNA. Sometimes, as in Kubla Khan, that gene is dominant. Sometimes it's recessive, but it's always there. 
I love that. I love that. And I, that just reminds me, I think that you begin uh, your piece on Ernest Hemingway with a basho haiku. And, yep. and it goes, uh, and, and so this is another form of poetry coming from Japan. And it's, um, it, it, can you say something about, and do, do you remember the, the poem that you, you yes. the haiku oh, oh, you use for oh. that? And, and I'd love for you to say something about haiku and the importance and how it's formed. And it seems so simple, but yet it's so powerful. Yeah. First of all, um, haiku is, is um, m- m- most people get miseducated about haiku. What, what most people learn about haiku in their English class is, Okay, it's a nat- it's a poem about nature with 17 syllables, five in the first line, seven in the second line, five in the third line. And then they write something like, um, in lovely springtime, nature is so beautiful, it makes me happy. Okay, 575, five, it's about nature and it sucks. It's, it's, it's not haiku. It's not haiku. First of all, 17 syllables works in Japanese. Japanese is a much more discursive language than English. It takes many more syllables in Japanese to say the same thing as it says in English. So if you're writing 17 syllables in English, it's probably too long. So the first thing, when I would work with my students and having them write haiku, say, forget about, I say, if it's got 17 syllables, I'm going to reject it. Mm-hmm. Make it as short as possible. The 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 essence of haiku is that it's a mo- a snapshot, a vivid snapshot of a moment of transcendence, a transcendent moment that is expressed in the simplest, most straightforward possible language, so that there's as little language as possible to get between you and the experience and the classic basho haiku and this one is like this is the mona lisa of of haiku uh, it has that kind of status in japanese culture and it goes first in japanese furuike ya kawazu tobikomu mizu no oto in english and by the way you can google this and you'll find you'll find dozens and dozens of people's attempts to translate it, right? So, so this is one stab. Not, it's not definitive. Old pond, frog jumps in, plop. And say something more because you, in, you, you really write more about this to help us. You hold our hand a bit in this one. You what old pond that that what that conjures up and just and how it appeals to our senses it it, it, yeah. it says the, so much more than just these right right yeah few because words. it's it, again it's like the pebble that goes out and out and out or the frog who who makes the ripples that go out and out and out in this case just the fact that it's an old pond 
right? Haiku, a good haiku, it looks simple at first glance, and it is simple, but then the ram, the it echoes like a, as a moment of, of transcendence echoes, reverberates through our consciousness, reverberates through our life. So the fact that it's an old pond means it's been there for a long time, means it's overgrown and mossy and shady. It's like a refuge. It's like the mind of a person who's grown old, mature on the Dharma path, or just old through years and wisdom. And and it's like it's been there forever. It's not going anywhere. It doesn't have to go anywhere. Now, along comes the second element, the fresh, young, active, new, in-the-moment thing, the, the lively frog. And when it jumps in, there's the coming together. There's the, the creation of the, 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 the Japanese phrase kind of means water sound, what's translated here as plop, mizu no oto. It's, it means the sound of water. Right now, that sound of water can't be made by the water alone, can't be made by the frog alone. It's the coming together of the two. So this is the way things are experienced by a, by actually by any human mind, but more, let's say, more vividly, more in, in a more awakened way by an awakened mind, by an enlightened mind, that every little thing whether it's my slippers over there next to the door or whether it's the the sound of the construction going on in the house next door or the or the thought in my head saying gee is there is is my microphone picking up those sounds <laughs> right that it's it all is that resonance in the infinite and then hemingway what hemingway brings is What's unique about Hemingway, and you learn all this stuff in English class, the Hemingway Code and all that, that, that's not really it. What Hemingway, what makes him important and unique is that he writes at his best. He writes novels that work like haiku. Language, so so the opening of his great um, early novel, A Farewell to Arms, Right, which is based on his own experiences of, as a volunteer in the Italian army driving in an ambulance. And it doesn't start off with a bunch of ideas. It doesn't start off with, well, in 1918, I was a fresh faced youth, volunteer, didn't know. It starts off with this listen to the concreteness, the almost irreducible simplicity of the language. In the late summer of that year, we lived in a house in a village that looked across the river and the plain to the mountains. In the bed of the river, there were pebbles and boulders, dry and white in the sun, and the water was clear and swiftly moving and blue in the channels. Troops went by the house and down the road, and the dust they raised powdered the leaves of the trees. The trunks of the trees, too, were dusty, and the leaves fell early that year, and we saw the troops marching along the road, and the dust rising, and leaves stirred by the breeze falling, and the soldiers marching, and afterward the road bare and white except for the leaves. Oh, God. Oh. Whoa, I need a cigarette. Yeah, um, <laughs> I mean, really, really. Yeah. I, 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 I hope our listeners can feel <laughs> right. just being in your class as you read that, and helps us to know that just the poetry of 
his writing and the simplicity, yet it just it just makes it so present. We are just right there and we see that road. We see the pebbles and the stream. We it, you can't help but see it all. And when you say it's poetry, you you know, you ask a lot of people, what what do you think of when when you hear the word poetry? And they'll say adjectives, fancy adjectives. And that's not it at all. It's nouns. They're right now. He doesn't say tiny pebbles, huge boulders, pebbles and boulders. The right nouns speak for themselves. And once in a while, he will grudgingly use an adjective, (laughs) but they're adjectives that are so straightforward and concrete. They they sound like nouns, clear, dry, blue. Beautiful, beautiful. I'm here with Dean Slider. He is the author of The Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dean Slider. He is the author of the Dharma Bums Guide to Western Literature. And we're talking about some wonderful, wonderful literary pieces and, and writings. And you just read something from Farewell to Arms by Hemingway. And I, I, want, to say, I want to say oh, one please, more thing, one more thing about that Hemingway. Please. Because a, a haiku at its best is going to evoke what in Japanese is called kensho. It's a glimpse of transcendence. And usually in a haiku, that happens in the third line. In that basho haiku, it's when the frog hits the water and we get plop, and that plop reverberates out into infinity. Now, in that Hemingway passage that we read at the beginning of A Farewell to Arms, we get the troops marching down the road and the leaves and all that. And at the very end, and the road bare and white, except for the leaves. So there the marching troops are like the frog. They activate things and then they leave the silence, the emptiness at the end, which now we hear the silence more clearly because the troops have been and gone. So Hemingway is so tuned into that. Did he read haiku? I don't know. I don't care. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, towards the end of that, as he, he's one of his characters, Nick, has been in the war and has, you know, has some PTSD probably. <laughs> and right. So say something about Nick and, and his, his realization as he's trying to heal from that. Right. So this is this is from Hemingway's great short story, Big Two-Hearted River. Uh, and uh, Nick, who is kind of his alter ego here, back from the war and, and, as you say, suffering from PTSD. But what's wonderful is it's never mentioned. It's there as this sort of presence, this subtext hovering all the time behind him. And as he just it mindfully tries to hold things together through the rituals of baiting his hook, 
casting into the river, building, erecting his tent, brewing his coffee and so forth. And it's just step by step by step, try as if trying to reassemble his, his mind. And then the wonderful thing is Nick looked down into the clear brown water colored from the pebbly bottom and watched the trout keeping themselves steady in the current with wavering fins. As he watched them, they changed their positions by quick angles, only to hold steady in the fast water again. Nick watched them a long time. Right? And then my commentary, the simplicity of that last sentence and the depth of what it conveys in its six Anglo-Saxon monosyllables is stunning. We see, we feel Nick gazing at the trout, studying them in silence, trying to learn from them how to be steady in the current of life. And for the moment, in the very act of watching, he is steady. We realize, again, without any of this being said, that in looking into the stream, he's looking into himself. It's so powerful. It's so powerful. Uh, and and you're you're so helpful to give us a way to to move into the writing, move into it so that it's it's embodied in our embodied and yes. we're feeling it in our body, not just intellectual or we're reading right. this with just our mind and our rational brain, but something beyond that. Right. And that's what you really help us glean from these precious um, literary pieces. And and all of this reminds me of when we go back to the beginning, farewell to arms and that road, now it's empty, that road empty. That reminds me, you also write about Virginia Woolf, who lived in the late 1800s into the mid-20th century, 1941. And in her piece, To the Lighthouse, I'd love for you to say something about that, especially the end where where she's really talking about that the house after the people have left. Um, mm -hmm. so. Oh, my God. Virginia Woolf is just really one of the great, great geniuses of English literature. Uh, her powers of observation and her powers of rendering in words what she observes is so brilliant. And what I do in that chapter is I connect her with what people call mindfulness practice, satipatthana practice. And I, and I quote from the sutras where the Buddha lays out uh, how to do satipatthana, how to do mindfulness. And then I, I compare that with what Virginia Woolf is doing in her novels. So, so that's a lot of fun. Um, part of what she does so brilliantly is she jumps into one character and then and sees what's going on and, and makes you experience what it feels like to be in that person's skin behind their eyeballs, how they process the experience of, of 
this this event going on, these words being said, and she'll be, be with that character for a few pages or several pages. And then like passing the baton in a relay race, the point of view is passed to another character. And we see pretty much the same events, the same now through this other very different sensibility. And that helps wake us up to the relativity of individual point of view. The fact that, you know, the word person comes from the Greek persona. It means mask. Person, a person is not ultimately what we are. What we ultimately are, as all the, the Dharma teachings say in various language, we are, we are boundless beingness or boundless empty awareness. We are luminous openness. All these words that are, that are inadequate, not because they don't say enough, but because they say too much. <laughs> you know, whenever you try to talk about it, it's just it's just one word too many. Um, but but we express through, we experience the world of time and space, or some some teachings would say we project the world of time and space through the mind, the thinking mind and the five senses. So she shows you, she goes from one to the next of how different those projections are to all those points of view. And then uh, she takes away all the human points of view, which is the, the, the whole thing takes place in the summer home of this particular English family. And then they, they go away for 10 years. Um, and just left in the house, which is their beloved vacation home. Um, and then this is the passage where we basically see 10 years go by in a paragraph. The house was left. The house was deserted. It was left like a shell on a sandhill to fill with dry salt grains now that life had left it. The long night seemed to have set in, the trifling airs nibbling, the clammy breaths fumbling seemed to have triumphed. The saucepan had rusted and the mat decayed. Toads had nosed their way in, idly, Aimlessly, the swaying shawl swung to and fro. A thistle thrust itself between the tiles and the larder. The swallows nested in the drawing room. The floor was strewn with straw. The plaster fell in shovelfuls. Rafters were laid bare. Rats carried off this and that to gnaw behind the wainscots. Tortoise shell butterflies burst from the chrysalis and pattered their life out on the window pane. Wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. So she takes us from all this life and points of view and all the the traumas of all the people is there, you know, their personalities are displayed out at the dinner uh then here here is this okay now yeah, here's the, the thing here's the, the thing toad I, nosing in the shawl sort of uh, yeah yeah let, let me read a little bit of my commentary please here. that's a lesson on on anatta anatta is the buddhist term for no self that ultimately we are not selves we are not 
individual persons. That's a lesson on anatta, no solid, individual, independent self. The rarely questioned paradox in our notion of self, the joker in the deck, is that of the almost 8 billion humans on the planet, one of them is the self, the star of the show, the center of all experience, whose joy or pain urgently matters. All the other people are, well, just other people, supporting players. And against all odds, 8 billion to 1 specifically, not counting the gajillions of other sentient beings, I got cast as the self. I'm the star. Sure, I understand in the abstract that others experience joy and pain, but let's face it, it's just not real to me in any kind of felt way. Oddly, though, all those supporting players think they're the star and I'm chopped liver. It's like here and there. It's obvious to me that here is over here where I am. You labor under, under the delusion that it's over there where you are. In section one, by frequently passing around the point of view, Wolf shows us the slippery ad hoc nature of selfhood, lending it to one person after another, then snatching it away. Now in section two, she snatches it away from all those persons at once, widening the focus to a big non-personal picture where not only each individual human's interests have lost their favored place at the center of the world, but so have those of the human race as a whole. The house's sad, ugly decay is only sad or ugly or decay from the human point of view. Let that go, and as the rats and toads and thistles take over, we see it's all the flourishing of life and all of it culminating in the tortoiseshell butterflies bursting from the chrysalis is strangely beautiful. Anytime we release our insistence on primacy of self or tribe or species, we find a bigger beauty to relax into. Self is a straitjacket. Like the butterflies, we can burst out of it anytime. Otherwise, in time, it will be shredded anyway. Magnificent. See, that's where I'm talking about, and I'm trying to convey to our listeners what, what a professor of literature you are. I mean, your classes, I, I mean, I, thank you for being here with us in, in this class today. <laughs> I'm speaking with Dean Slider, and He's the author of the Dharma Bums Guide to Western Literature. And I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Dean Slider, and we're talking about the Dharma Bums Guide to Western Literature. And there are several pieces that you have in here that, that are really quite fun. One, Dr. Seuss is one that you go cat in the hat, which is just magnificent, into a deep dive into this um, children's first reader. One of my favorite things that that uh, wound up happening in my cat in the hat chapter was that I connected it with the time that I spent in Tibet with my wonderful uh, Buddhist teacher from Switzerland, Charles Genoux, who's an internationally recognized authority on Buddhist iconography. And he would walk us through temple after temple, seeing and pointing out how, okay, this Buddha is wearing a red undershirt, and that means this aspect of consciousness, and this one's wearing a yellow, this one, the mudra of his hands like this. And so then I take the portrait of the cat in the hat that's on the cover and break that down, the iconography of, of the cat in the hat as a particular kind of Buddha. And then the, the picture of the, the cat first striding into the house um, to the shock of the boy and the girl. He's, he's over on the right. They're, they're shocked sitting over on the left. And then I put that parallel to the great painting that I, I got fascinated by when I was in Rome, uh, Caravaggio's Calling of St. Matthew where there's the future St. Matthew and the other tax collectors over on the left. And here come Jesus and St. Paul bursting through the door on the, the right. And, oh, here's this. It's the same awakening, the same. Here comes this thing that's going to upset the apple cart of your life, how you thought things were going to be. And by the way, it's the same pattern as Kramer in Seinfeld bursting through the door and creating all kinds of wonderful chaos. Yeah, it's wonderful, wonderful. And you go through all sorts of things, the red and the white of the hat and what that means and mm -hmm. the color of that and whether the hat is tipped forward or whether it's back and uh, yes. his, his hands are in mudras. It's just magnificent. Thank you so much. I want to make sure that we cover also J.D. Salinger and his Holden Caulfield. And um, yeah, let's let's talk about him for a bit. I I love the part he's asking a question, and he's kind of fascinated with ducks. Uh, mm -hmm. And and he finally asks the question about I wonder uh, what happens to the ducks when when the pond when the pond in Central Park freezes over. And of course, he's not really interested in ducks. He's interested in looking for a, a solution to his life. This is really his life question. It's his koan in a way. It's the the knotty problem he's got to solve to sort of get his his consciousness turned right side out to be okay. I start off with the idea that Holden typifies what one of my teachers called the restlessness of the seeker. He doesn't know what it is that he's looking for, but he knows what's being offered. He knows that the vision of the good life that's offered by you know, conventional standards, there's something unsatisfactory about it. You know, and I, I start by talking about how before coffee came to Europe in the around the year 1600, I imagine that you know people were just kind of stumbling around, muttering, like, "There's got to be something else, but I don't know what it is." Um, and then in in some of uh, Salinger's later work, uh, particularly when he his Glass family stories 
about Seymour Glass and and his siblings, uh, he starts more clearly articulating what it is that we're looking for. Holden then is in as he's knocking around in in Manhattan on the in the winter with no coat, feeling vulnerable, feeling the vulnerable, you know, beaten down by life, asking everyone he meets, where do the ducks go when the pond freezes over? And no one has an answer. And then he gets into a taxi cab with this very unlikely guru, this Horowitz, this 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 hypertensive, hyper-excited cab driver. At first, he responds, how the hell should I know? How the hell should I know a stupid thing like that? But then he changes the subject to fish, as if Holden has been asking the wrong question all along. The fish don't go no place. They stay right where they are, the fish, right in the goddamn lake. They get frozen right in one position for the whole winter. Their bodies take in nutrition and all right through the goddamn seaweed and crap that's in the ice. They got their paws open the whole time. That's their nature, for Christ's sake. See what I mean? Holden doesn't see what he means, at least not right away. Horowitz means, or rather Salinger speaking through Horowitz means, no, don't try to flee from the world. Don't duck out of your problems. And no, don't wait to be rescued. Take the third way, the Dharma way. Stay right where you are. Horowitz's parable of frozen fish taking in nutrition through their pores may not be scientifically precise. Just for starters, I'm pretty sure there's no seaweed in the Central Park Lagoon, but it's a highly precise meditation instruction. Don't try to split your experience between good, the smell of the wafting incense, and bad, the sound of the barking dog. Without judging or filtering, without favoring or resisting, simply rest in the midst of it all. Open your pores to it all. And you go on to, to really talk about uh, opening your pores to all. That that's yeah. That's like yeah. as a as a as a key to meditation, and then as a key to life. And I invoke. I love bringing in as. Again, I love iconography, so I actually have a picture here of Garuda, the space eagle of Tibetan Buddhism. Then whatever shows up to the five senses is fine. Whatever thoughts or feelings show up, fine. By being innocently present to whatever presents itself, you discover that it's all a present, all nutritious and delicious, the kingdom of heaven spread upon the earth. In the Tibetan tradition, this approach is personified by Garuda, the space eagle, whose name means devourer. He's always shown triumphantly feasting on venomous snakes, representing the so-called bad experiences we usually try to avoid. And he metabolizes them into enlightenment. The venom makes his feathers shine. Mm, mm. And, and you go on talk about how Holden has said, okay, he's reached the end. Of, he's made up his mind to go west. But before right. he does, he goes to his sister, who really is the innocence of uh, not grasping, uh, not judging. I mean, she's just this heartful right. person. And, and her name is Phoebe, which makes her a sweet, innocent, like a sweet, innocent little bird. But also she's Phoebus Apollo. She is the speaker of, of liberating truth. There she is, liberating truth. And before he leaves, he goes to tell goodbye to her. And I, I love that, you know, she appears 
dragging this goddamn big suitcase with her. So, mm-hmm. you know, here she is. You see this little girl and she's dragging this big suitcase as, as he's saying goodbye. So it, what can you tell us about that scene? Yeah. Um, yeah. And she's dragging the suitcase saying, I'm going to go with you. And that's when he realizes, no, I'm not going anywhere. I changed my mind. I'm going to stay right where I am. So there he's finally learned the lesson of the fish. He's learned the lesson of Garuda, the space eagle. Stay where you are. Open your pores. Process it right right where you are. Where you are is not a mistake. It's a, it's, it's a feature of this life. It's not a bug. And you take us in the same way that Gautama, who later became the Buddha, all of his travels around and being an aesthetic and doing this and that, mm-hmm. he does the same thing. He, yeah. he and 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 in both cases, the what's wonderful and and maybe not enough appreciated is that what triggers that final acceptance is an act of kindness from another person. You know, this beautiful, just heartbreakingly poignant gesture from Phoebe. If you're going, I'm going with you. That's essentially what that's that's love, and that's what what saves him. In the case of the Buddha, what's often forgotten is that just you know, first it was okay the life of indulging the senses in his father's palace, then run to the other opposite. It's like Huck Finn from one shore of the river to the other. He had to find the way down the middle. So then the six years of starvation and asceticism in the forest. What triggered the him finding the golden middle path was a village girl, Sujata, who offered him a meal, offered him a bowl of a kind of a rice pudding, right? Not fancy stuff like he ate in his father's palace, not starving himself. Here's simple, nutritious. Ah, okay. And that gives him the strength. And more than that, the attitude, the right frame of mind to sit down and meditate and, and become the Buddha. And and we get the same thing with Huck Finn. With Huck is only going to find his liberation, his salvation through uh, hooking up with Jim, the runaway slave, and where he has the great temptation to turn Jim in. And really, it's the moral climax of the book, where they've they've developed this beautiful friendship flowing down the the river, and then. Huck is suddenly he's he's seized by this religious terror. He's starting to relive everything he's heard from every racist preacher, uh, and he thinks that by helping by helping Jim steal himself out of slavery, so called, he's committing a sin and he's going to go to hell. And he just ruminates over it, ruminates over it, and finally he says what may be the six most exciting words ever written: "All right then." I'll go to hell. Uh, It's amazing. Oh my goodness. I just, I, I wish we could go on and on. I just want, thank you so much for being here and just, just letting us dip in a little bit into all that you've presented to us in this particular book. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Dean Slider. He is the author of the Dharma Bums guide to western literature and if you want to know more about his work go to his website deanslider.com spells his last name s-l-u-y-t-e-r deanslider.com or you can get there through the new dimensions website newdimensions.org
I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3,755. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.